Okay, let's uh, continue on together. Morning, great to see everybody on this unseasonally warm April weather. Isn't it good? It's often smiles on people's faces when the sun's out, um, which is great. If you are new here, can I add my welcome to you, or you're one of your first times, or maybe you're new to the whole church thing, full stop, and you're looking in on the Christian faith. We're glad that you're here. Um, and if you're a part of King's Church, we are also, I am also very glad that you're here. Uh, my name's Philip, if you don't know me. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are launching a new teaching series this morning, which I'm very excited about. And the question I want to ask you, there were some whoops there. I didn't give those due... Yeah, due volume, very Kingston whoops. Um, I want to ask you a question this morning, and indeed probably every week over the course of this series, which is this, what is God like? What is God like? Or to put it a different way, what do you think of when you think of God? A Christian writer, A.W. Tozer, said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? In, um, in praying for and preparing for and studying for this, this series, um, I've just really sensed God speaking to me for us that the nature of this series for us as a church is to enable us to really see God as he is, to know God as he is, to worship God as he is. I really believe he's going to enlarge our view of him. And in so doing, it might be that we need to put down some slightly diluted views of God because they're not appropriate to who he is. And at the same time, I believe he's going to enlarge your mind, enlarge your hearts, and help us to really behold him. I want us to kind of look up spiritually, as it were, and behold God as he really is through this series. And I hope and I trust and I pray be brought to worship as a result, which is what Anna was alluding to before. Uh, The children in King's Kids are following the same series, which I'm really excited about. Louise and her brilliant team have already created some brilliant resources to help the kids engage with this as well. So if you're a parent and you're not quite sure yet what the omniscience of God is, you better get swatting up because your kids will be coming to you very soon. Um, if you are not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're looking in on this whole thing, you've picked a good week, I think, to join with us because this is going to really help you. My heart is to help you see God as he really is. It's my experience that many people reject God, not because of who he actually is, but because of a distorted view of who he is. I find myself saying to some mates of mine, family of mine, things like, I, I, I reject the same God that you do. I don't believe in that God either. So I want to show you Something of who God is, really is. Not because I've got special revelation, but because the Bible shows us to help you choose whether to reject God or choose God, which is a pretty stark choice. But whether you choose God or reject God, I want you to choose or reject him as he really is. And my heart and confidence is that as we show you God, you'll be brought to worship him, enjoy him, and choose him yourself. Just as a little aside, if you're wondering why we're, we're in here for the fourth week running, uh, it's because the, the staging in the auditorium is, is fairly spectacular, and um, I would be in some pain if I were speaking there now, given where the staging is. So we're going to be in the cafe for a few weeks. Uh, and actually, as a new sort of leadership team, we're just mulling over where this might be a good place for us to be for a little bit longer anyway. We're not sure. We're just mulling and praying, and we'd welcome your, your thoughts on that as well. So more on that to come. So the series is called Spotlight, which is what the name that Jamie, who's on staff here, came up with, which is a great name, because I was just chatting to him about the premise of the series, and he said, this is a spotlight series, which is, he is right, because we're going to shine a spotlight each week on a particular characteristic of God, a particular attribute of God. And this week, the first week, is to consider the attribute that is the independence of God, 
We're gonna consider together this morning the independence of God. And I can see some quizzical looks, which is good, because it means you're engaging. What do I mean by that? Well, we live in the modern West, and we talk a lot, don't we, in our culture, I think, about independence, not least about the importance of being individually independent. Just a very quick Google search this week along those lines showed that to be the case, that on the first page of the Google search, you get links like 11 ways to be independent in a romantic relationship, eight important reasons why you should be more independent, five reasons why being independent and self-reliant is good, and so forth. It's everywhere, the call to be independent. And yet we're not. We are so far, are we not, from being truly and genuinely independent. We don't live independent without being reliant on anything or anyone else. As children, we need adults to provide for us. But as adults, we need the emergency services and the laws of the land to protect us. We need sources of energy to feed and heat us. We need transport to move us. We need loving relationships to sustain us. We need education to teach us, the internet to connect us, and sport to inspire us. We are not independent at all. We are so reliant on people and things and so forth. But God is entirely different. He is other in that respect. He is utterly and completely independent. He is not in need of a creator. He has no need of a sustainer. And he is perfectly full and joyful in and of himself. And theologians call this God's primary attribute, his independence of being. He is dependent on no one and nothing. I want to unpack that over three more kind of theology phrases. Number one, the self-existence of God. Number two, the self-sufficiency of God. And number three, the self-satisfaction of God. Those of you who love your theology and scripture and want to have your mind tested, I think you're going to really enjoy this. But don't worry, if you're more of a, how does this feel? I think we're going to... We're going, to, we're going to work on mind and heart together. But I want to challenge you to really um, get stuck into this. Number one, the self-existence of God. What is that about? And already you're thinking, well done Mark and Kate Goddard for teaching the kids this morning right now about the self-existence of God. Genesis verse one, Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. First verses in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, a universe, sorry, not in the, in the beginning of the universe, a being called God emerged who created things, tells us in the beginning, God. So the self-existence of God is to say that God exists not because he was created, but because he has always been. Psalm 90, verse two, the psalmist cries out, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God is eternal, not only in that he will exist forever, as will all of those who are in the family of God through Christ, we too will exist forever with God. He's eternal in that sense, but unlike us and those who will be with him forever, he has always existed. Psalm 93, verse two. Your throne is established from of old, at which point you might ask, yes, but how old is your throne, God? And the psalmist says in the next verse, you are from 
everlasting. You are from everlasting. Part of the independence of God, point one, is his self-existence. In other words, there has never been a time when God was not. Just meditate on that for a moment. There's never been a time when God was not. And he's here this morning. That's who we gather to on a Sunday morning. Meditate on that this tomorrow morning. There has never been a time when God was not. And he's here. He's with his church. And it's mind-bending, at least for, for my little brain, as the concept of, of God being a being who has never not existed, a God who is outside of time and space, indeed who is the reason that we have time and space, as mind-bending as that is, it is also logical. So, all things in the world are what scientists and philosophers call contingent entities, yeah? i.e. they all, everything in the world has a cause outside of itself. Nothing exists in and of itself, everything's being caused in some way. So think about that much-loved Great British institution, the Great British Bake Off. Okay, which some 10 million people tune into. If you want to find out the reason for the existence of one of those lovely cakes, you could take the cake apart as much as you wish. You could chop it up into tiny, tiny, tiny pieces, look at all the ingredients, but you will never, will you, find the reason for the existence of the cake within itself. You have to look outside of the cake for its reason to exist, which is its baker. And so it is with the universe. The universe, he says in his layman's terms, is kind of like a huge pile of cakes. It's a huge pile of contingent entities, things that can only exist because they have a cause outside of themselves. So you go back and back and back and back and back and keep tracing everything's reason for existence, and you get to the beginning of the universe. And scientists are now agreed. They're caught up with the Bible. They agree that the universe does have a beginning. And so at some point, you need there to be a being, something that is the original cause, that therefore would have to be very different to all of the contingent entities that make up the universe. We need something that is entirely other, something that is eternal, a necessary being, philosophers call it, something that can exist in and of itself to begin the universe. Now, of course, people would contest this, not least very well thought of scientists. They would say, we don't need a necessary, uh, non-contingent being to cause the universe. Professor Stephen Hawking would say those things. He, of course, so sadly passed away last month, and, and he confirms what the Bible has always said, which is the universe does have a beginning. But he goes on to say, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. It's why the universe exists, why we exist. It's not necessary, he says, to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Now, I am no scientist. My wife is the clever one in our family. I am no scientist. And I also, I have nothing but respect for, for Stephen Hawking's incredible contribution, like what he's helped us to understand about the universe, black holes and gravity and so forth. It's amazing. Um, and an incredible, gifted, brave man. But it does strike me as an obvious problem with what he is postulating. Because he's trying to say that we don't need a, an original being for the universe to come into action. The universe can form itself from nothing. But actually, he's not saying that. He doesn't say the universe came from nothing. He says it came from the law of gravity. 
And that's what you find the scientific community, at least that aspect of it, doing a lot. It's kind of basically having to redefine what nothing is. And he's saying, actually, the universe did come from something. I'm just going to call it nothing. It's the law of gravity. Which begs the question, well, where did the law of gravity come from? Was the law of gravity just kind of hanging there in eternal isolation? Or was there a lawgiver? And interestingly, I think Hawking sat in the Cambridge academic seat that had been uh, sat in, as it were, by Sir Isaac Newton many years before. And Isaac Newton examined exactly the same thing, the law of gravity being the reason for the universe. But for him, it was the reason to see the lawgiver, not to dismiss the lawgiver and redefine nothing. The lawgiver, a necessary, eternal, infinite, self-existent, utterly independent being. In the beginning, God. Revelation chapter one, verse eight, the same letter at the end of the Bible that Jamie read from just before. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So part of the independence of God is the self-existence of God. He has always been. Number two, the self-sufficiency of God. Let's go back again to our original verse, Genesis chapter one, those first two verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. It kind of brings a question to mind, at least for me, and for, I think for many people. So, which is this, if God was present at the onset of the universe, indeed he had always been present, if it was just him, and had only ever been him for all eternity, was God lacking in some way? Is that why he, he created? Was God lonely? As I think I would be when in the beginning the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. It's like a very bleak place to be. Was God was lacking in some way? Is that why creation, the universe, came to be? Because Christians can speak a little bit like that. We wouldn't use those words. We can... We can think, we can write, we can preach, we can pray. In some ways, as though God is in some way lacking. As though God needed to create us and continues to need us in some way. I've heard it said before in churches that God has a U-shaped hole in his heart. He doesn't. He doesn't. There is no lack in God. He would not be God if he lacked in any way. Malachi chapter three, verse six, God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. John chapter five, verse 26, Jesus says, the Father has life in himself. Life exists within the Godhead perfectly and fully. And part of the reason for that is because the Godhead is the Godhead. God is a community within himself, Father, Son, Spirit. That's the Trinity, that's week four. Pray for me when I describe that to you. The Father, Son, and Spirit were beautifully, were always beautifully and perfectly content within themselves, within the three persons of the Godheads, not lacking in any way. And in our self-absorbed idolization of the individual culture, we need to hear this. God doesn't need us. A.W. Pink, who wrote a, a classic book last century, called The Attributes of God, says this. During eternity past, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. 
He makes this very good point. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also would have been called into existence from all eternity. Were we necessary to the fullness and completeness of God, we would have been there too from all eternity. We weren't. You might say, well, I don't, this doesn't make me feel very good. I don't feel very important now. You might also say, well, hang on a minute. Surely God, surely God created all things for his glory. Psalm 19, verse 1, Philip. The heavens display the glory of God. Creation is for the glory of God. Yeah, exactly. They display what is already there. That's the purpose of creation, to display the glory of God. It doesn't add to it in any way. Theologians talk about the intrinsic and the ascribed glory of God, the intrinsic glory of God being who he is in and of himself. Ascribed glory is how creation responds to him. So we don't add to his glory, we respond to it. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 14. This is God speaking through Isaiah um, quite bluntly. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with his hand span? God says. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Let me just drill into one of those rhetorical questions for us. Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Or a, ha- a hand span, he means. So just for a moment, just stretch out your, your hand span. How, how far does that cover? About a banana's worth, maybe? The hand span of God marked off the heavens. So, let's put that into context. There are 93 million miles from us to the sun. 93 million miles. Just imagine for a moment that the, the, the thickness of this piece of paper represents the 93 million miles you have to travel from the Earth to the sun. If one piece of paper represents the 93 million miles you travel from the Earth to the sun, to travel from the Earth to the nearest star, you would have 25 yards high of paper and God marks off the heavens with a handspan. If you were to count all the stars just in our galaxy, and you were to do it, you were to count each star once every three seconds, and you were to have no sleep, so you do it for 24 hours a day, it would take you a millennium of counting to count just the stars in our universe. And if you were to count the stars at one every three seconds, 24 hours a day, for all the galaxies in the universe, it would take you a trillion years and God, with his hand span, there's the heavens, marked off. What does this tell us? It tells us not only that God is mighty and powerful, it tells us that he has no need of anything or anyone. A God who says, there are the heavens, there are the hundred billion galaxies. He has no need, he has no lack, he is not in need of anything or anyone. He is self-sufficient. There is nothing that he lacks. A.W. Tozer, different A.W. Pink, who also wrote a classic book called The, Attribute, called the Knowledge of the Holy, said this, God is the one who contains all, who gives all that is given, but who himself can receive nothing that he has not first given. 
God is the one who contains all, who gives all that is given, but who himself can receive nothing that he has not first given. In other words, God is utterly independent. He is independent of a creator, and he's independent of a sustainer because he is self-sufficient and therefore the source of everything that he is. And he's here. And he knows you. Number three, the independence of God. Self-existence of God. Self-sufficiency of God. Number three, the self-satisfaction of God. What do I mean by that? Because when we describe somebody, a person, as being self-satisfied, that tends to mean they're a bit smug, doesn't it? Self-satisfied. So what are we talking about here? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. It's a good place to start. This is Paul writing a letter to Timothy in the first century, describing God to him. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now you might say by this time, okay, Philip, I get the message. Independence of God, we're talking about God being immortal, as Paul says, eternal, unique, self-sufficient, no lack in any way, almost unapproachable because of his incredible otherness. Yes, we are talking about that. But don't miss the first phrase. He who is the blessed, blessed and only sovereign. What does blessed mean? Because it can be used in a rather diluted word in, the, in sort of church life. Be, be, be blessed, which means have a, have a better day today than you did, you did yesterday. What does blessed mean according to the Bible? Well, it, means, it means joyful. It means satisfied. You could say it means happy. Over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, in, Ma- in Matthew 5, Jesus pronounced famous words. He said, blessed are the poor and the meek and the marginalized, and the hungry. Blessed are you, he said. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is in a wonderful way, particularly for those who are vulnerable and marginalized and on the edge, which is why we're partnering with compassion. And he was saying, when such people come to me, because I'm the, I'm the gateway to go into the kingdom of God, they will receive such deep joy and surpassing happiness. From who? From God. In God is to be in the kingdom of God. You see, to be blessed is not ultimately to receive some temporary, uh, happy, some temporary happiness to your circumstances. To be blessed is not ultimately to receive temporary happiness through circumstantial improvements, but to receive the blessed one himself. The one God who is intrinsically joyful, satisfied, content, happy. I know happy is a quite a loose word in our culture, but let's not let maybe what we've done to the word diminish the profundity of what it can communicate. Listen, how many of us can say that we are happy entirely, intrinsically ourselves, dependent on nothing? Our happiness is connected to all kinds of things, isn't it? Our happiness is connected to our health, our relationships, our children, our sense of significance and self-worth, our success, It's connected to our our sense of being safe and secure. It's connected to our sense of being well thought of and so on. There are so many things that cause our happiness to fluctuate and ebb and flow. Agreed? My happiness fluctuates due to the successes of sports teams. It's relying on all kinds of things. 1 Timothy 1.11, same letter. 
In the previous chapter, Paul says, the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which you could translate as the good news about the glory of the happy God. How often do we describe God as happy, joyful? God is inherently, utterly joyful. Doesn't mean he's not grieved by circumstances and suffering. One of the things you've got to get your head around in this series is that God's attributes and characteristics don't play off each other. They don't kind of make up for for aspects of lack in, in each other. God is perfectly full in every attribute. They don't play against each other. God is inherently happy. Psalm 16 verse 11. In your fullness there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's who God is. I love how Jesus describes the Father's response to those people who use their resources well. In Matthew 25, verse 23, Jesus tells us what God will say to people who use his resources well. Parable of the talents, you may have heard it. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. We know this bit if we've been in church for any time. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Great, we say. But the rest of the verse says, now enter into the joy of your master. Where God is, is where joy is. Full, complete Remember, the Father, Son, Spirit were never lacking in anything. They were totally joyful, happy, and content in themselves and would have continued to be had they not created us. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 7. Strength and joy are in God's place. I love what God says in Matthew 3, 17. The Father speaking over Jesus when Jesus humbly and joyfully submits himself to baptism. And the father says these beautiful words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the dynamic between father, son, spirit. Total mutual pleasure, delight, happiness, joy. So, what are we saying as we kind of come into land? This, that God is the only truly dependent being that has ever been. He is dependent on no one and nothing for his existence, for his sustenance, for his happiness, or anything else. I just want to help us to land with this one final passage. It might be that you're thinking, wow, God, I just just want to worship you. That's what we're going to do in a moment. I hope you are. You might also be thinking, if, if God is so independent, if he's self-existing and self-sufficient and self-satisfied, if he doesn't need me or have any need for anyone or anything, how do I fit into that? How how do I respond to a God like that? Well, firstly, I would encourage you to respond with humility. A.W. Tozer, remember him? He says this, to admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries, this requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So, unfortunately, we tend to save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Don't do that. Remember, spiritually, we're looking up to behold God as he is. That requires humility especially in a time of the world where we we worship the individual. And secondly, I'd encourage you to to respond with with delight. 
And I think this final passage, Ephesians 1, verse 4 to 5, shows us why we should respond or why we get to respond with delight and worship as well as humility and worship. And actually, it kind of summarizes all that I've been teaching as well. So I hope it's doubly helpful. This is Paul again writing in the first century to a, a different church in Ephesus describing the wonder of our faith. And he says, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Brother Ross and Emma could come and just join me, help us to begin to respond. Just as I finally unpack, stay with me, just wanna finally unpack those, those few verses. Because they basically summarize all that I've just been teaching and they help us to find our place. Yes, in humble awe and worship, but also I trust in, in delight and worship. Look at what these verses are telling us. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there it is, the self-existence of God. Before the foundation of the world, there God is. He's always been. And in some incredible way, before there is time and space and universe, the Trinity are having a discussion about you. If you are in Christ, if you are in the family of the kingdom of God through Christ, you were chosen to be in that family before there was even time and space and the universe itself. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Why did he make those choices? Out of lack, loneliness, need, in love. Not out of need, in love. God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It was as an overflow of love that God made decisions. Not just to create a creation and mankind and humanity. Not just to allow us the dignity of choice and freedom, which would mean that we spoilt it and wrecked it and stained it. He also made a choice that he wanted you, redeemed, made whole, a son, a daughter in his family. This, this means something to us. This is not just theology. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to invite you to enter into the extraordinary mystery of taking your choice to respond to the choice of God that was made in eternity past. He gives you the dignity of choice to reject him or choose him. Step into the choice that he made to have you here today to be holy and blameless in his sight now and forevermore to live forever with him as a son and a daughter of God. He made that choice out of love, not out of lack. Why else did he do it? According to, that means because of, the purpose of his will. That translates as his pleasure and will. He did it because it gave him pleasure. Remember, he's a perfectly pleasurable, joyful, happy being, and for sheer pleasure, he not only created you, and was patient with you whilst you did your best to wreck that and put yourself on the throne and rather than him. It was his pleasure to call you back into the family of God to worship him forever. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, for his glory. Remember, 
Intrinsic glory, inscribed glory. You're here, if you're a Christian, you're here to bring ascribed glory to the intrinsic glory that has always been the case since before there was even time. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's that word again. With which he's made us happy in the happy one. With which he's made us joyful in the joyful one. To be in the kingdom of God is to step into the place where there is joy and pleasure forevermore. To be a Christian is not somebody who signed us some moral rules, though we give our lives in obedience to Christ. We have been blessed in the beloved. And that decision was made before there were planets and stars and a universe and galaxies out of an overflow of love and pleasure for you. Should we worship this God? Why don't we stand? And do that together. And expect God to be amongst us and to move and to speak. Lord God, we say... You are amazing, you are awesome, you are in many ways unknowable, and yet you have made yourself knowable. And so I just pray, by the power of your spirit, would we behold you now as you are? Would we put aside our individualitis and behold spiritually the one who is unknowable and yet has become knowable, the one who is self-existent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and has an overflow of love and pleasure has created and has brought us into a right relationship with him to do what is appropriate for all of us to do forever, which is to worship God. We say we love you. We're in awe of you. We want to bring the ascribed glory that is appropriate to your name. Amen.